Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today, Hillary Clinton on a special edition of GPS. On Trump's foreign policy. Why on earth would we want two nuclear challenges in Iran and North Korea at the same time? On President Putin's vendettas against Hillary Clinton herself and America. He wants a weak America. He wants an America that is divided from within. On just what cost her the 2016 race. He was running a reality TV campaign and stoking a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. It's going to be a disaster for our country. And on her marriage, and that time when the whole world was able to watch its worst moments. And I'm not going to say it was all, you know, rainbows and puppy dogs. Uh, It's hard. Also, America is making a new push for coal while China is going in a whole new direction. A tale of two countries and two very different strategies. But first, here's my take. When running against Donald Trump, Jeb Bush made a prediction about his highly unusual Republican rival. He said Trump was a chaos candidate and that he would become a chaos president. Bush fared badly in the primaries, but that prediction is proving remarkably accurate. In this last week, Donald Trump has thrown grenades into the American healthcare system and the Iranian nuclear deal, exploding the existing frameworks, but with no clear replacement or strategy or solution. In the first months of Trump's presidency, what was most striking was the lack of any actual accomplishments. Various lists have been compiled of the things Trump promised to do on day one of his administration. Label China a currency manipulator, start repealing Obamacare, begin building the wall. He kept only a handful of his promises. Mostly he was talk and not much action. The world noticed. Last month, among the many insults that Trump volleyed toward North Korea, he sent one China's way. On September 3rd, he tweeted that the U.S. was considering stopping all trade with any country doing business with North Korea. This was obviously a dig at China and a massive threat to the global economic system. Were America to stop trading with China, it would be a seismic event, almost certainly producing a global recession. In the past, the Chinese have responded angrily to any such threats from Washington, always zealous about articulating and defending their national interests. This time, they responded by saying nothing. They didn't bother to reply. Beijing seems to have understood it's Donald Trump. Don't take it too seriously. Now, perhaps sensing that he was increasingly seen as a paper tiger, Trump in recent weeks has become much more assertive. While he has still been unable to accomplish much by way of major policy, despite having majorities in both houses of Congress, 
he has become much more aggressive in his rhetoric and executive actions. On the environment, healthcare, and foreign policy, Trump has decided to act, but not in a strategic manner with a new policy carefully thought through, bolstered through consultations with key allies, and then comprehensively implemented. No, instead it is a series of unilateral actions, speeches, executive orders, that disrupt existing policy without actually replacing it with an alternative framework. The result in healthcare will be uncertainty, pain, and confusion. Various groups and state governments will go to court. Insurers and healthcare providers will seek administrative reviews and clarifications. People will find it even harder to plan for the future and bank on having access to healthcare. In foreign policy, the damage might be even greater. The United States is now blasting an international agreement it is a sworn party to without exiting the agreement. It is taking pot shots at an international framework and then yet staying within it, sort of. The result is a foreign policy that is not just unpredictable, but incoherent. Trump has now signaled to countries like North Korea, never make a deal with America, because even if we sign, we might still upend the whole arrangement anyway. In his speech on Iran, Trump made the bizarre claim that other countries think in hundred-year intervals. Even if this were true, which it isn't, Trump's actions suggest that his administration cannot even stay the course for a few years, let alone a hundred. Donald Trump's national security team, the so-called grown-ups, have signed on to this contradictory policy toward Iran, which is a sad sign, perhaps, that they value their jobs more than their reputations. Republicans used to pride themselves in being the party that was serious about foreign policy, committed to conservative values like order, continuity, and credibility. Instead, they have now as their leader an impetuous, mercurial showman who scorns any such stability. The result is just what Jeb Bush predicted, chaos. And let's get started. It has been 342 days since America voted in the 2016 presidential election. Most everybody expected Hillary Clinton to emerge victorious. But although she won the popular vote by a margin of almost three million, the Electoral College, of course, went to Donald Trump. And that is what makes one president in America. As for the former first lady, former senator, former secretary of state and former presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton has done a lot of reflecting on the past and looking forward to the future. Her book, What Happened, is still a month after publication, atop the most read and most sold lists on Amazon. I sat down with her on Wednesday to talk about what happened in the election, but also about Trump foreign policy, about Vladimir Putin and his role in the 2016 election, and about something deeply personal, her marriage. Secretary Clinton, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much, Fried. So Donald Trump says that he wants a new policy toward Iran, that the nuclear deal didn't deal with all the other things that Iran does, mm -hmm. regional behavior, ballistic missiles, and that the whole idea here is to put much more pressure on Iran, that the Obama administration policy was a mistake. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's very dangerous. Uh, I think his talk about decertifying uh, compliance uh, against the advice, as I understand, from even the people in his own administration, as well as many voices on the outside, 
uh, sends the wrong message for uh, a number of reasons. First of all, uh, it basically says America's word is not good, that even in the absence of evidence that Iran is not complying with the uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal, uh, that this president is going to upend it. That is bad, not just on the merits for this particular situation, but it sends a message across the globe that America's word is not good. We have different presidents, and this particular president is, I think, upending the kind of trust and credibility of the United States uh, position and negotiation that is imperative to maintain. Secondly, it once again gives Iran an advantage. If Iran is complying, which all the evidence is, then all of a sudden, instead of working to isolate Iran on every issue, we are giving Iran the spotlight, the aggrieved party spotlight. That makes us look foolish and small and plays right into uh, Iranian, Iranian hands. Third point, this nuclear deal was to put a lid on Iran's nuclear program, which it has. That doesn't mean Iran is not engaging in other bad behavior, which we always knew. I began the negotiations on the Iran deal. I got the sanctions uh, through the Security Council as Secretary of State. I know that Iran plays a game of aggressiveness and, and undermining uh, of our interests and the interests in the region. There's no argument about that. But my point has been and remains, I would much rather deal with Iran's other bad behavior while not worrying at this moment about their nuclear uh, program getting up and going again. And why on earth would we want two nuclear challenges in Iran and North Korea at the same time? What about with that other nuclear power, North Korea? Uh, Trump says, uh, look, let's face it. Uh, the policies of the last few administrations haven't worked. The North Koreans have raced faster than anyone imagined to, uh, to obtain a nuclear uh, weapons program, nuclear weapons, ballistic missile, intercontinental missiles. Isn't that fair that the past policy hasn't worked? Well, I think there's two points to be made. Um, just because something hasn't worked exactly as you want it doesn't mean your first alternative should be threatening military action. It should be learning from what has and hasn't happened in the past and engaging in an intensive diplomatic effort that lays on the table some of the risks, not only from North Korea's aggressive behavior with nuclear uh, weapons and its development uh, or its efforts to develop uh, ICBMs that can reach American territory. But it also is important to say, look, we will now have an arms race, a nuclear arms race uh, in East Asia. We will have the Japanese who understandably are worried with missiles flying over them as the North Koreans have done, that they can't count on America. What deeply distressed me uh, like a week, 10 days ago, was when we saw pictures of uh, Secretary Tillerson in Beijing meeting with the Chinese, talking about diplomacy, which is exactly what he should be doing, and I certainly applauded him for it. And then we get a tweet from the president basically saying, forget about it, Rex. You know, they won't do anything. There's only one answer. I, I find that so disturbing because you should not be talking about matters of peace and war and nuclear weapons with 
tweets. And yet we know that is how this president behaves. So do you think Tillerson should resign? Ah, I don't know the answer to that, because, you know, you have to ask what's next. I mean, at least in the in the very recent past, he did seem to be trying to do what a secretary of state should do until he was undercut by his president. I'm hoping that didn't stop him and others within our government, both inside the government and maybe, you know, trusted advisors outside the government from continuing uh, direct diplomacy, looking for ways to try to contain. Diplomacy, preventing war, creating some deterrence, is slow, hard-going, difficult work. And you can't have impulsive people or ideological people who basically say, well, we're done with you. Well, well, that, you know, we're not done with their nuclear program. We're not done with their aggressive behavior. You know, you've got North Korean officials saying you've lit the wick of war. You know, they're very dramatic uh, uh, it, with their rhetoric. And this is playing into Kim Jong-un's hands. I mean, the idea that he's going tit for tat with the American president who is tweeting against him and calling him names, that is catnip to this guy. And what we've done is to build him up, give him more legitimacy than he deserves to have, given how his people are being treated. And I think that's a very short-sighted and dangerous uh, route to take. Next on GPS, the Russia question. In 2011, as the Arab Spring was toppling dictators, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton encouraged Russians to protest Vladimir Putin's rule. Did Putin decide to mess with her election as payback? I'll ask her. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. I got to ask you about another world leader, um, Vladimir Putin. Yes. You write about him in a, a, remarkably. It seems like there was bad chemistry from the start. <laughs> you talk about how he would sit in a way that yes. that it was almost disrespectful. Where you call you call it man spreading. Yes. Well, the way he would he would. Right. Uh, um, and I was wondering whether you've thought about because you recount the the events that we tried to highlight in a documentary as well. Basically, the Arab Spring happens in 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets nervous about it. Then the Russian elections are impending. Mm -hmm. Protests begin. And in December of 2011, you uh, say, when asked in Lithuania, you say you come out in favor of democracy in Russia, implicitly those protesters. There are many people who believe that Vladimir Putin decided that you were out to get him, mm -hmm. that, he, that you were trying to do a regime change in Moscow, mm -hmm. and he was going to get you back, and that the election interference was payback for that speech. Well, the intelligence community has said in its reporting um, on the Russian interference uh, in our election that uh, Putin uh, has a grudge against me. I was speaking as a secretary of state. I was speaking on behalf of free and fair elections and democratic process and that the Russian people, if you're going to have an election, deserve to have one where their votes were actually counted and to have a competitive uh, political uh, system. Now, I was the messenger on that message, but I think that Putin's uh, campaign against us is much more about American democracy. He has a strong belief that he has um, spoken about that uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a catastrophe in human history. 
And he really does want to destabilize democracies in Europe, in our country, undermine the Atlantic Alliance, undermine NATO, undermine the European Union, uh, because he believes that that will then give Russia uh, a real chance to be dominant, certainly in Europe and certainly along its borders, even as far as Central Asia, and that the United States, which he views as his uh, primary adversary, will be weakened. Now, I think he was successful in what he did in our election, because the more we learn about it, the more we understand that highly sophisticated intelligence analysts uh, tried to sow divisiveness within our country. He wants an America that is divided from within, which is really the only way that anybody will ever take us down if we turn on each other. Uh, he was shrewd in his analysis that I would have been much more willing to stand up and speak out as I had as a senator and as a secretary of state. And he had some familiarity, maybe not personally, but through uh, proxies with Trump and with Trump's mindset, which is very positive toward authoritarian uh, behavior. And I think he made a smart bet from his perspective. Now, right at this moment, he's not getting everything he wants because thankfully we have checks and balances and we have members of Congress who pass sanctions, which Trump signed but is not enforcing uh, to send a clear message that you can't mess in our elections, uh, Vladimir Putin. So he got some of what he was looking for, uh, both with uh, the president who was elected and with the divisiveness that was generated. He hasn't gotten everything, but keep an eye on him because he's not done. What happened is the name of Hillary Clinton's book. It was also the question on many people's minds in the days and weeks after November 8th, 2016. I'll ask her whether her campaign misdiagnosed what Americans cared most about. It turned out it wasn't the economy. In the book, you say at one point that one of your uh, campaign uh, advisors uh, pointed out to you that on the basis of the polling, it seemed like there were two dominant issues. Uh, economics, um, the slow recovery, uh, and political gridlock. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, you know, you've got a lot in here, but, but you very carefully and analytically analyze what, what, what may have gone wrong. Was the big mistake, in a sense, if, it were, if there was a mistake, that it wasn't just those two issues. What, what Trump showed was that there was a series of cultural issues around immigration, race, um, and, and, and that these were very passionately felt by a whole group of people, mm -hmm. working class whites, mm -hmm. and that, in a sense, you guys missed that. You know, Farid, I talk about that in the book because um, there's no doubt in my mind that there was economic anxiety, which we were prepared to address, and I believe we did, even though it was hard to break through on the media, because we were running a presidential campaign that we thought was... Uh, aimed at telling people what I would do as president. He was running a reality TV campaign and stoking a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. So we had the uh, economic anxiety. And in fact, exit polls show, as I relate in the book, that for people who said the economy was their number one issue, they actually voted for me. But what he did from the very first day of his campaign was to tap into all this crime, cultural anxiety. But so, what should Democrats do to try to deal with the reality that there is this cultural anxiety is is there you know is there any way to connect with it without succumbing to prejudice well i have said and i and i really believe this that 
I'm not going to give up on the progress of the last 50 to 60 years in our country. We are a fairer, better nation because we have the Civil Rights Act, because women's rights were recognized and we both knocked down uh, discrimination and created more doors of opportunity, that we are treating uh, gay people with respect and giving them their equal rights as citizens. That, you know, when you look at freedom of religion, something that was so critical to our Constitution, why are we scapegoating Muslims? You know, people who are here in our country making contributions. So my view on this is it's a terrible mistake for Democrats or anybody to walk away from these core values and rights. We have to stand up for them and we have to do a better job, number one, of explaining to people, you are being snookered. You know what? The real threat to your future is a government that doesn't care about you and is taking actions that will make your life even harder and is favoring the wealthy beyond anything we've ever, ever seen before. But doesn't it distress you then that you watch, you, you make that, that argument, mm -hmm. that very cogent argument, and he plays with the NFL controversy, yeah. Yeah. which is purely symbolic. Right. And it's clearly an attempt to again. Right. But look at his numbers are shrinking. The people who are still favorably disposed to him are really the hardcore of his base. It may be enough to win a Republican primary. It may be enough to scare Republican members of Congress who worry about getting a Bannon-inspired opponent from even the further right. So, yeah, it has political consequences within the Republican Party. But we have to do a better job of making it really clear that a lot of what he's doing is to distract from the very real impacts of actions he and his government are taking. They are turning back regulations on equal pay, on overtime pay. That's money out of workers' pockets. They are going after health regulations by opening the door to chemicals and pesticides that the scientific community say, what are you doing? These will affect children's health and other people's well-being. So we can go down this line and we have to do a better job of making it clear what the stakes really are. I can understand why people either didn't take him seriously or said he's not going to really do that when he's president. I said in my concession speech, give him a chance, you know, let him be the president for everybody. But I opened the book with my reaction to his inaugural speech, which was dark and divisive, continuing the worst aspects of his uh, campaign. Next on GPS, sexism and misogyny, how women are treated in today's America. Hillary Clinton talks about her experience on the campaign trail. You have a story, um, you say something in the book which I thought was very interesting when talking about um, you as a woman. You say that you thought uh, Bill Clinton had a good story to tell about right. his life. Right. You know, grew up in these very impoverished circumstances, mm -hmm. first person in his family to go to college. You say Obama had a great story to mm. tell, um, Kenya, Indonesia, all that. And you say your story was okay, it was a nice you know, middle class yeah, yeah. upbringing. Yeah. But then you say, actually, you had a great story to tell mm -hmm. about being a woman. Right. But you say you don't think America is a country yet where telling the story of being a pioneer for women's rights would get you universal applause. Why? 
Well, because I think sexism and misogyny are endemic in our society. And I do try to take readers on a journey with me. Uh, and obviously, uh, I use Bill's story and Barack's story to tell uh, how galvanizing you know, they were because people immediately saw this arc of, you know, from, you know, poverty in Hope, Arkansas, you know, from a biracial family uh, in Hawaii, how really impressive and exciting their stories were. I'm a middle class girl from the middle of the country. And so I, I always struggled with like, OK, so what's my story? And it suddenly dawned on me that I was the beneficiary of these radical changes in you know, women's rights and opportunities that uh, began in the 60s and continue, and that I could have and maybe should have tried harder to tell that story. But I quickly add, as you point out, I never thought there would be that receptive an audience. And I think that what's happened since this election may have cracked that open. I hope it has. I hope, you know, I'm seeing tens of thousands of people on my book tour. And I've now shaken, you know, about seven, 8,000 hands in book signings and spoken to, you know, 10,000 more, and I've got much uh, still to do. There seems now to be a willingness by more and more women and girls to claim uh, their rights in a very explicit way, not an apologetic way, not like, oh, you know, excuse me, let me express my opinion. But no, I have an opinion. I want to tell you what that opinion is. And I'm hoping that in the book, the chapter on being a woman in politics really does further that uh, discussion. Uh, because I was appalled at the level of sexism and obviously the behavior of Trump, both in the past and during the campaign, was kind of exhibit A of what we're up against. And there does seem to be a, a backlash against women speaking out. You see it online uh, as women express an opinion and then are totally deluged. You see it in Silicon Valley. You see it in the media. You see it in a lot of places where women's uh, advancement uh, has gone very far, much further than uh, it certainly seemed at the time when I was coming of age. But there is this pushback now. And I think we need, and not just women, but fathers of daughters and husbands of wives and, and uh, people who care about fundamental fairness. And in the book, I say, look, you know, feminist seems to be like a word nobody wants to use. But that's because it's not appropriately understood. Feminism is not about women having more rights. It's about women having equal rights in the workplace, in the politics of a society, in the culture, having the right to be yourself and to be able to express that and to have that both appreciated and uh, providing a platform to go as far as your talent and hard work will take you. You lost the white women vote. Mm. Do you mm. think white women in America voted their race over their gender? You know, here's what I say in the book. And, and there's a... There's a tiny little silver lining because I just barely won white college educated women, but I, I lost, uh, you know, white women overall, one black women by a very large 94%, one uh, Latina women by 68%. So I won women overall and I lost, um, you know, uh, white women, uh, predominantly non-college educated white women. 
I do think that gender has not become a political mobilizing uh, factor the way that race has and the way that I think President Obama almost transcended it um, and was able to, you know, be elected twice. I think that gender is still a challenge in the political arena. Now, more and more women are running and more and more women are getting elected uh, at various stages in our political process. I say all the time, as I write in the book, the best way to get sexism out of politics is to get more women into politics. And I am, with a new organization I've started, Onward Together, I am uh, supporting and helping to fund groups that are trying to do just that. Uh, so. It's not there yet, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And honestly, Fareed, as I say in the book, I would have won but for Jim Comey's letter on October 28th. I think every day that goes by, the evidence of that um, becomes clearer. And I don't, I don't blame any woman who hears that, oh, the FBI is opening another investigation into Hillary Clinton for saying, well, oh, my God, I'm not wasting my vote, or I can't vote for her, or I'm just not going to vote now. I, I get that, because, you know, for women, their vote is a very personal commitment, and they want to be sure they're right. And there was, unfortunately, a lot of noise at the end with, with the Comey letter and WikiLeaks that raised a lot of questions uh, in the minds and hearts of a lot of women. More with Hillary Clinton in just a moment. Is there something she would like to do differently if she had the chance to do it all over again? A very revealing answer when we come back. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. Um, I think the most frank uh, and revealing passage in the book, um, to my mind at least, uh, and this must have been hard to write, was about your marriage with Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. You say, mm -hmm. we had dark days in our marriage. Um, you all know about them. And please consider for a moment what it would be like for the whole world to know about the worst moments in your relationship. There were times I was deeply unsure about whether our marriage could or should survive. But on those days, I asked myself the question that mattered most to me. Do I still love him? And can I still be in this marriage without becoming unrecognizable to myself, twisted by anger, resentment, or remoteness? The answers were always yes, so I kept going. Yes, right. And you talk about how you want to talk about this only because it might help other people. So right. my question to you is, what was it that allowed you to come to that conclusion? Was it that you decided it was worth forgiving mm -hmm. the things mm -hmm. that, that happened in the past? Mm -hmm. Is it possible to forget them? Do they, do they come up? How do you, you know? Well, you know, today's actually our 42nd wedding anniversary. Uh, we've been together uh, through our entire adult lives. And uh, I have, you know, I, I feel like I have gained so much, learned so much uh, from my relationship with Bill. I've been tested as you uh, uh, certainly point out. Um, and every marriage is different. I would not in any way uh, tell somebody what they should do in their marriage faced with disappointment and, and pain. And I could only do the best job I knew to do to try to come to grips with uh, 
what the uh, feelings were that I had, um, were they strong enough to maintain a marriage, to continue our life together, to make our home a welcoming and joyous place. And I'm not going to say it was all, you know, rainbows and puppy dogs. Uh, it's hard. And I think staying in any long marriage is hard for all kinds of reasons that don't have, uh, you know, an easy formula to look up. And some people, I, I've had dear friends who have had problems in their marriage and ended their marriage. I've had dear friends who had problems in their marriage, worked through them, and we're glad they did. I fall into that second category. Do you, do you feel as though when you look back um, on this whole life, is there something you would do differently? People often look at your, as your, at your career and say, brilliant woman, uh, no, you know, very well briefed, but a little too programmed. If she had only been herself more. Do you feel like you wish you had let the real Hillary come You know, I, I've, I've obviously heard that, and it always sort of, you know, amuses me, actually, because I think I've been the same person. Now, I will say this, and I say it in the book. I mean, I've cared about the same things ever since I was 21 years old. I've cared about kids. I've cared about families. I've cared about health care and women's rights. I've cared about all the same things. I have tried to live my life uh, with integrity and with a sense of purpose uh, to it. And I've been really privileged to serve in a lot of capacities where I thought the work I did made a difference. Having said that, I admit I was not the most natural politician. You know, stepping out on Daniel Patrick Moynihan's farm when I announced I was running for the Senate back in 99, never thinking I would be in that position, being persuaded I should try it. I was not at all sure it was for me. I'm much, I'm much easier about doing the job and being a political figure is much harder for me. So I have had to learn as I went. You know, I loved serving in the Senate. I built great relationships and even friendships and worked across the aisle to get things done for people. I loved serving in President Obama's cabinet. And here was my former opponent asking me to be his secretary of state. I left that job with a 69% approval rating. Now, when I get into the political arena, it is absolutely true, given the scars I have from the attacks that I have been, you know, under for so many years, I probably come across as a little too guarded, a little too careful. I talk about you know, letting my guard down in this book. And I wish that maybe I had done more of that because that might have been easier for people uh, to understand. But I am really mission focused. And, and that may not be a good fit for the reality TV era of politics we find ourselves in. And, you know, that's why, you know, I've said, look, I'm going to do everything I can to keep talking about the future, fighting for the future I want, standing up against you know, policies uh, that I think are bad for America and the world. Um, but I'm, I'm going to continue to be myself the best I can be. Hillary Clinton, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Fareed. Now for something completely different. The Trump administration said this week it's bringing back coal, despite admissions from the coal industry that it will never really come back. And while America is going back to the 19th century, 
China is moving into the 21st faster than anyone might have expected. I'll explain. The war on coal is over. That was Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA, announcing the Trump administration's repeal of the Obama-era clean power plan. That policy from the last administration was intended to curb carbon emissions from coal-fired power plants. The story ran on the front page of the New York Times, and right under it was another story detailing China's massive new investment in electric cars, part of Beijing's determination to dominate the era of clean energy technology. It is a tale of two countries and two strategies. The Trump administration has decided to move into a new century, the 19th century. In 1950, coal accounted for half of all U.S. electricity generation. It is now down to a third. Additionally, massive automation has meant that jobs in the industry are disappearing, down from 176,000 in 1985 to just 50,000 in 2017. Machines and software are replacing workers in coal mines just as surely as in other industries. And these trends are unlikely to change despite Trump's policy shift. The reason is economics. The price of natural gas has plummeted in recent years, and its share of U.S. electricity generation has nearly tripled since 1990. Solar costs have also been plummeting. Coal-fired power plants are one of the nation's leading source of carbon dioxide emissions, and most scientists agree those emissions lead to global warming. And, of course, coal-fired power plants cause terrible air pollution with all its attendant health problems and costs. That's one of the reasons why China, which suffers over a million deaths a year because of poor air quality, is making huge investments in clean energy. The country has become one of the world's leading producers of wind turbines and solar panels, with government subsidies enabling its companies to become cost-efficient and global in their aspirations. According to a recent report from the UN, China invested $78.3 billion in renewable energy in 2016, almost twice as much as the United States. Now Beijing is making a push into electric cars, hoping to dominate what it believes will be the transport industry of the future. In 2016, China sold more than twice as many electric cars as in the United States, an astonishing catch-up for a country that had almost no such technologies just 10 years ago. All of this has already translated into jobs big league, as President Trump might say. 3.6 million people are already working in the renewable energy sector in China, compared with 777,000 in the U.S. Donald Trump has often talked about how China is killing us and how he's tired of hearing about China's enviable growth numbers. He should notice that Beijing is getting its high growth by focusing on the future, the next areas of growth in economics and technology, and ensuring it will be the world's leading producer of clean energy. Meanwhile, the United States under Donald Trump will be engaged in a futile and quixotic quest to revive the industries of the past. Who do you think will win? For more on this, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And thanks to all of you. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.